Welcome everyone to It's All Relative, the show where we talk about and dissect crime within the family. Since the last two cases and several episodes have been on the mob, I thought it would be appropriate to re-release that mob primer episode with audio you can actually understand. Next week is Thanksgiving, and I will be taking that time off. The week following, that would be the first week in December, we will be back with another all-new episode if it's all relative. So here we go. It's All Relative is back yet again, listeners. I am your host, Kaylee, and the topic of our current podcast interval delves into the murky world of the Chicago mob. Upon hearing that, you should automatically be warned that this podcast deals with grievous topics that may not be pleasant listening for everyone. If you are worried that the word everyone may include you, now is the time to turn the channel, as they used to say when people still listen to radio. For those people still here, let's get things going with some words from the Don himself, Marlon Brando. A lady wouldn't flirt with strangers. She'd have a heart, she'd have a soul. A lady wouldn't make little snake eyes at me when I bet my life on this road. So let's keep the party polite. Why don't he shoot? Why don't he shoot? Never get out of my sight. Come on, her stall is. Stick with me, baby. I'm the fella you came in with. Be a lady. Guys turn and gallop. Luck be a lady. What are you scared of? Luck be a lady tonight. The CYA enforcers, uh, that's cover your ass, would like me to inform you that this podcast and its contents are all me and mine alone and have no affiliation with any person or organization other than me. I do try to be accurate and fair. However, I may make mistakes and I may also give an opinion that you may not like or may be unpopular with the general public. Should this happen, I remind you of a comment I made last time. I am a root vegetable and you will get no blood from a turnip. Now that the legal mumbo-jumbo is dealt with, let's talk about the mob. So I got a book about a case that looked like it had potential. It did. And I'm going to apologize right off the top. It may seem like I'm getting bogged down in tangential details, but in educating myself about one case, it actually turned into two cases, both of which I will present to you. However, more than a rudimentary knowledge of the Italian mafia in America is essential to understanding both of these cases. I did not realize how much I took for granted about the Mafia and how much I did not know about the mob, specifically in Chicago. I am not a mob fanatic. I do not have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Mafia organizational tree. I have not followed any legal cases against alleged Mafia members. I have never seen The Godfather, The Sopranos, or even growing up Gotti. I never saw The Untouchables, although that was more to do with my indifference towards Kevin Costner than anything else. When you have an attraction to crime stories, I think you get a patchwork of common knowledge about the mob. One of those pieces of this patchwork is the way the mob is organized, and that idea is generally formed around the New York mob. This is in part because, generally speaking, New York was where the mafia began in the U.S. Don't come for me, New Orleans. In New York, the mafia operated in families. To be clear, They're called families, but it would probably be more correct to call them syndicates because a DNA match is not necessary for someone to become a part of a particular family. 
So the Mafia family may be called the Bonanno family after the name of the boss. But that doesn't mean that all members of the syndicate are named Bonanno, or even all the top-level members are Bonanno. These members are all male, by the way. No women can officially become members. It would, however, not be uncommon for members to be genetically related. And, if only to introduce onion-like layers of irony... Hello, Ma. We're in Wazoo. It's in Beecham County, Alabama, Ma. Not, not too good, Ma. We, uh... We've been arrested. Ma, Ma, please. Ma, please. First of all, we didn't do it, all right? Murder. Ma, Ma, please. Ma, Ma, it's a mistake, all right? We must look like the guys who did it. I don't know what it is. Tell her what we think is happening. What we think is happening. Shut up. We think they're trying to set us up as patsies, Ma. You know how corrupt it is down here? They all know each other. That's right. The clan's here. They're in bread. They sleep with their sisters. Some of them do. All right, Ma, listen. We gotta get an attorney, and it's gonna cost a lot of money. How much would an attorney cost? A decent one? Fifty, a hundred thousand dollars? Fifty, a hundred thousand... I know, Ma. I know. Can we use any attorney? I think so. He says he thinks so. Oh, he is? Well, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You think he'll do it? What? We got an attorney in the family. Great. Who? My cousin Vinny. The mob wants members they can trust and who they can keep an eye on. This is easiest if members recruit other members they know. The friend your son grew up with, your son himself, or cousin Vinny. And if you haven't seen that movie, you are really missing out. The scaffolding of the American Mafia came from southern Italy, particularly Sicily. Most Americans do not understand the politics and ethnocentrism that existed 100 years or more ago and still exist in other parts of the world and in small bits and pieces still here in the U.S. So here's a crash course. Most places in Europe started out as small districts, to use an inexact phrase. These districts had their own gods, their own language, their own traditions. In Southern Europe and pertinent to this topic, Italy, these were essentially city-states. Now, in the 19th century, there was a push in the Western world for certain portions of these districts to merge and form nations. And if you want to know why, look it up. Look, I swear I'm trying to keep this short, but you have to understand that I have been taught to pontificate on a topic until the horse is not just dead, it has become crushed bone, and then have my peers rip said pontificating to shreds, and lastly be told that I didn't expound enough. So, anyway... Up to this point in history, meaning the push for nationalism, all the city-states in what we now know as Italy did see themselves as independent entities. But again, for a lot of reasons you can delve into on your own, they all held in common their general dislike of Sicily. So when Italy was unified, the newly minted, quote, Kingdom of Italy, unquote, just scripted a proclamation that Sicily was also part of this new kingdom. Yep, they just wrote it down, and it was so. And you Italian historians, shush, I am trying to keep this simple, remember, and on track with the information pertinent to the story I am telling. At the turn of the last century, that's 1900, not 2000 for anyone who's confused, people in Italy are not happy for lots of reasons, and they emigrate. Many emigres come to the U.S. Remember when I said old Europe was actually made up of districts? Well, this mentality still existed 
even well after unification. It has mostly softened over the years, today seen particularly in team support for footy matches, that would be soccer for the Americans. It is said you do not choose your team, you are born into one. Modern Americans tend to think that the reason we have places like Chinatown and Little Italy is that these immigrants settled near each other because it was comfortable. It was what they were used to, and there wasn't a language barrier. <laughs> sort of. Sticking with the relevant country of Italy, the language of convenience was Italian, but most Italians who emigrated actually spoke the language of their district. And by the way, when I say language, I'm using this for simplicity. Some of these are actually dialects, some are actual languages. Frankly, linguists themselves argue over where that line should be drawn, and a lot of the decision actually boils down to whoever has the political power at the time. These so-called Italians who came to America are, at best, actually moving into a home next to people who they know nothing about and may actually not even be able to easily communicate with. Yes, I did say that the language of the land they came from was officially Italian, but immigrants were often poor. Maybe one person in the household would be taught Italian, but they would mostly and probably totally speak with each other and the people in their district in the language of that district. Neapolitan, Ligurian, and even German-based languages if they were coming from northern Italy. As a side note, about 10 years ago, my Italian friend and I went to what I thought of as an Italian restaurant. My friend, being Italian, was a very vocal person and soon got into a conversation with the owner in Italian. My friend spoke with the restaurant owner for some time. Finally, the owner went off to do restaurant things and we consumed our food. At some point, she's low-key laughing and I looked at her to explain. She said she overheard another staff member ask the owner if he had been speaking to my friend in Neapolitan, and his answer was, no, I was trying to talk to her in Italian, eh? So these regionalistic mentalities were still around even just 10 years ago. And by the way, this owner dressed in a way that made me think of a mafioso. Gold chain, flash watch, extra button open on his shirt, and his hair swept back in a medium pompadour. And I told my friend this. She was really surprised because that was basically how all men dressed in Italy. Anyway, so no, Italian immigrants at the turn of the century weren't really moving next door to people who reminded them of home. What was happening, though, was that they were willing to settle next to other Italians because, one, as poor immigrants, they took what they could afford, and that was often in the same place as all the other poor Italians. And two, it was more comfortable to settle next to another Italian because their language and culture is more similar to them than the Chinese or Irish immigrants. And three, immigrants were generally coming to the U.S. in the hopes of a new and better life. And that way of thinking often involves trying to change your prejudices and be accepting of other people who are trying to do the same. Thus, a Tuscan, say, living next to a Corsican, eh, might be tolerable by comparison. Okay, now that we've got them to the U.S., let's talk about the next act in this saga. Italians kind of had a hard time making the great American dream come to fruition. I promise I am not going into an analysis of racism from the beginning to the end of the 20th century, but try to understand that Italians in the early 20th century were not considered white. 
they were one of the ethnicities who were socially at the bottom of the barrel. They came here poor, and it was shit trying to become anything else. The main way to gain financial solvency and societal respect was to take it. Young men, boys really, watched how hard their parents were working just to maintain the very, very, very basic needs of life, including how they were treated by the greater society. And those boys decided that work wasn't for them. It was shit. They wanted more out of life than just surviving. Now, keep in mind, the parents were doing all this so their children would have a better life than they did. Going to school and having a non-manual labor job was high on the list of hopes for their kids. That is, especially the male children. For the girls, it might be school. And then, certainly, marrying a white-collar employed man. But because they only see the squalor and the struggle, small bands of boys, like three to five of them, would quit school. Most of them hiding this from their parents, at least for as long as possible. Oh, and just so you know, I don't think I've heard the word hoodlum so often in my life as I have in the last few months researching the mob. Is it possible to two youths? Uh, to what? Uh, what was that word? Uh, what word? To what? What? Did you say utes? Yeah, two utes. What is a ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. Um, that was also from my cousin Vinny. Now, throw into the mix. A few mafiosi who actually came to the U.S. by choice or were sent by the organization back in Sicily to advance mob business in the USA. And those mafiosi are offering money, respect, and a place to belong. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. I don't know how accurate Goodfellas was for the 1950s, but at the turn of the century, until at least the Second World War, a lot of these young hoodlums realized they would really have money and respect if they could work for one of these crime bosses. So, they would set out to catch the eye of whatever man they thought was best, like Lucky Luciano and Giuseppe Joe Mazzaria. And if you need a background on those guys, you will have to look that up as well, or I'll get way off topic. So, voila, the American mob was born. Now, there are a few different syndicate-style organizations in Italy, but in the U.S., the Sicilian version, or Cosa Nostra, became the model for the U.S. There's a boss, aided by an underboss, and administered to by one or more advisor, or a consigliere. Under his command are soldiers, that would be the boss's command, who are led by a capo. These capos basically run crews around various neighborhoods. Succession of the proverbial crown, so to speak, is given to the best man and not necessarily nepotism. However, sons are often encouraged or even groomed to take over. There is a very strict code of etiquette and ethics. No one writes anything mafia-related down. No one throws a fellow mafioso under the bus. And no one betrays the mafia to the authorities. Omuerta. This is so serious that the penalty for breaking these rules is death. Breaking omuerta can even result in the death of family members. In Sicily, every member of a 
of a mob family has to be Sicilian. In some way, a position in a Sicilian mafia family is a way to protect your community, and it is an honor to be part of it. This is, of course, an oversimplification, but it is necessary to understand at least the basic Sicilian system to understand how and why the American mafia evolved into something a bit different, and ultimately what sets the Chicago version apart from them all. In America, hoodlums joined the mafia, and not all of them were even Italian let alone Sicilian. Meyer Lansky, Jewish. Gus Alex, Greek. Marie Humphreys, Welsh. During the Great Depression, there was a big grab for power among various mob factions, and blood literally ran in the streets. In New York, Lucky Luciano, we'll go with that because it's a really nice story anyway, knew that the mafia would never survive if the war continued, they'd all be dead. So in 1931, he called a meeting, reminding all the families that what they really wanted was to make money, and the best way to do that was to work together. It was the Yalta of the mob before Yalta was even a thing. A commission was formed, listing the divisions of power into families and naming the heads of all those families. The commission also eliminated the position of capo di tutti i capi, or the big boss, the boss of bosses. There were seven families in the original commission, five in New York, one in Buffalo, weirdly enough, and one in Chicago. The families would all share in decisions and no major action would be taken without the consent of the whole commission. Instead of the strict rule allowing a man to be only of Sicilian descent, it was decided that associates, including consigliere, could be of any ethnicity. But to be officially a made member of the mafia, a man had to be Italian. This particular restriction has changed a bit over the years, but it's where it started. And if there is anyone listening who doesn't know what it means to be a made member of the mob, it's like baptism or gaining tenure. It means you are officially a member of the mafia. Like baptism and tenure, there are steps you need to follow to become eligible to be made. And also like baptism and tenure, once you're in, it's really difficult to get out. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Al Pacino there in Godfather 3 in a tip-your-hat moment to the difficulty of even a long and faithful-serving mafiosi to truly retire. Okay, so we have the basis for the American Mafia now. Let's get into the Chicago outfit. Now notice how in the count room nobody ever seems to see anything. Somehow somebody's always looking the other way. Now look at these guys, they look busy, right? They're counting money, who wants to bother them? I mean, God forbid they should make a mistake and forget to steal. Meanwhile, you're in and you're out. From casino folks, and that yes, it does take place in Vegas, but they were all outfit guys, okay? So about the same time Luciano was building his reputation in New York, Johnny Torrio and a young man named Al Capone were doing the same in Chicago. Before the formation of the commission, Torrio had to gain his power in a similar bloody manner as Luciano did, and the two men were very similar in many ways. Torrio, however, wanted to be a businessman even more than Luciano did. He seemed to want to avoid bloodshed as much as possible. He would negotiate. Torrio also seemed to like the life of a family man. Now, I can't guarantee that he never cheated on his wife, 
But I am saying he wanted the general idea of the life of a family man rather than the one of a gangster. Both Luciano and Torrio miraculously survived assassination attempts, but Luciano used those attempts to fuel his fire to run the mafia. Torrio took it as a sign that he should retire. Remember, Luciano, New York, Torrio, Chicago. Although Torrio is rumored to have had deals with Mussolini, Torrio lived a quiet life after his recovery and subsequent retirement. He died 37 years later of a heart attack while sitting in a barber's chair. And that's not something you can say about many mafia bosses. Torrio left control of the Chicago family to Al Capone, probably the most infamous mobster of all time. Al Capone started as a hoodlum, trying to get that better life than his parents had, and seeking to gain the eye of the bosses. He became a mentee of Johnny Torrio, but Capone was really happy to have smaller mafia jobs, like heading a shakedown crew, or even not officially working for the mafia at all, like when he was just a bartender in a mafia-owned pub. When he got married, he even worked as a completely legitimate accountant in Baltimore. But Capone was also loyal to his friends, and he needed a good and steady income for his family. Remember, he got married, and they had a small son. So when Torrio called for Al's help, Capone moved to Chicago. Granted, Capone eventually became a very brutal killer. He loved cocaine and his brothels. There is a possible case to be made for Capone's syphilis having something to do with the change in his personality, but that's another topic entirely. He may have lost sight of some of his idealism, but in general, Capone got into the life, meaning the mafia, with the outlook to make a better life for his family. Capone wanted to be a good provider. Torrio had essentially the same vision, and he actually got to enjoy the fruits of his labor for the latter years of his life. I believe this concept is what influenced the way the mob evolved in Chicago. It also didn't hurt that the commission was made up of six families in New York, as in New York State, because, you know, Buffalo. And then there was Chicago, half the country away. This made it so much easier for Chicago to just go their own way. The Chicago mob is called the outfit for a reason. This goes back to a slightly different outlook on what the mafia is for. The purpose of the outfit, other than to make money, is to provide a better life for a man's family outside of the mafia, not to create a life for your family members, and particularly your sons, to run. In New York, a mafioso may aspire for his son to take his place one day as leader of a powerful family or as a capo of a particular crew, just like many men hope one day their son will run the family business. In Chicago, a mafioso will do his best to keep the rest of his family out of the business. He will keep his activities secret from his family, and his family knows, usually by unspoken rule, that you never ask Dad or Uncle Nicky what they do for a living or how their day went. A member of the outfit will devote his own life to the Chicago mob completely, but his family remains free. Not that there weren't exceptions. The Spilatro brothers, for example, but not including a mafioso's family in anything mob-related is the general rule. Take, for example, Tony Accardo, one of the longest-living bosses in the Chicago mob. He was 86 when he died. He actually worked with Capone at the beginning of the outfit. 
none of Accardo's progeny are connected. In fact, he has started a pretty good dynasty in the field of American football, the Bosas and the Kumaraos, for instance. All this background will come to good use in the following episodes. If you want some more, probably more entertaining background, I actually recommend both seasons of AMC's Making of the Mob to get the basics of the early years of the American Mafia. Just keep in mind that they did take some liberties with history. The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Mafia by Jerry Capisi is good too. And I recommend Inside the Chicago Outfit on the VPod YouTube channel. Hey, um, VPod guys, please make more. In the next episode, we will discuss the Calabrese family and how Chicago's version of the Mafia was corrupted to the detriment of a father, an uncle, and a son, and frankly, the whole Chicago mob. Until then, I leave you with a word or three from Frank Sinatra. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. I love it, bet your bottom dollar you lose the blues in Chicago, Chicago. The town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. On State Street, that great street.